You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm your co-host, Brandon Ware, here with my lovely other half, Dr. Jess. Hey, hey, we're coming at you today from Jamaica. We're still isolated in Negril. I think we're going on around 13 days and... We're, we've been asked to isolate for 14, and we're going to be, I guess, seeing my family in a couple of days, which is making me a little bit nervous. Obviously, I'm super excited to see them, especially my cousin, Annabella, but it's an interesting time, of course, to see people or bubble with people, and I know, babe, you're not feeling 100% like actually bubbling with the family and there's there's only five of them I mean there are hundreds of them down here <laughs> but five that will be staying on property with not in the same house but on on their property <laughs> and it's not that I'm not excited to see them but I think our opinions of distance and safety are a little bit different and let me be, be clear I'm excited to see your family too, but I want to, it comes with a, I'd like, I'm excited to see your family at a distance or with a mask on or outside. Well, Jamaica makes it easy, obviously, to, to be outside, which cuts our risk. And I thought I'd bring this up because I think it's something that we don't, we don't fully agree on. And I also don't think it's something that we're necessarily going to meet in the middle. So I'm of the mindset that I'm pretty comfortable seeing my family outside, um, you know, even sitting at a dinner table outside. And that could change. I think that's the thing with comfort levels. You know, if I see something happening with other people in the picture and it makes me uncomfortable, maybe my perspective shifts. But, you know, oftentimes in relationships, we think about, oh, how do you meet in the middle? And I'm thinking that anything I do you're essentially doing. So let's say you decide to always stay six feet apart or to wear a mask even when you're outside. That sort of becomes irrelevant if I'm conducting myself differently. So I'm not trying to get into a debate here about masks or the virus or anything like that. It's more about how we come to terms with the fact that your comfort level is different than my comfort level. And I kind of feel like in this case, it's more my job to come to where you're at because you're a little more cautious than me. So to, to further clarify, I, I'm kind of prepared to be outside at the dinner table with my family um, closer than six feet and taking my mask off to eat and drink, obviously. And I think you would maybe like to still maintain this a little bit more distance. And yeah, so I'm sort of feeling like, okay, well, maybe I should just respect where you're at because anything I do, I kind of, I bring into our, you know, little shared space between the two of us. Yeah. And it's not that I'm just laughing because of course I'm going to take my mask off to eat and drink and do all those things. But it's about, for me, it's compromise. For me, it's, it's number one, it's willing to listen to the other person's perspective and try to get an understanding. And it's also a willingness to, not that I have to be flexible on what it is that I am comfortable doing versus what you're comfortable doing. But again, it's just the willingness to have a dialogue, to communicate, and to listen. Well, <laughs> what if I were to make a prediction? Go for it. What's your prediction? I want to hear. I don't know. What do you, I think that once you're with the family, you're going to get comfortable and you might let your guard down. 
Uh, having said that, if you saw like one of my family members maybe socializing with more people outside, like other guests in the in the vicinity, maybe then I'll see, I'd see you pull back. But I guess what I'm trying to say is my prediction is you you say that you'd like to keep six feet of distance even if we're outside, and I have a feeling you might not. And I'm not trying to call you inconsistent. I just, I don't know. That's my thought. Yeah, and I think in this particular case, I've been the one who's been more cautious around what we've been told to do and not to do about the virus. And I'm also, everything is fine until it's not. And I have said that even before this existed, when it came to business, it was like, you know, everything's cool until it's not cool, in which case you look back and retroactively feel like you would have done things differently. So I'm trying to take a step in the direction of looking proactively at what if something were to happen? Would I look back and judge my decisions differently than how I'm approaching the situation before it actually happens? And I think my thought is that it's a small group of us being mindful, we're still going to be outside. And again, like uh, this isn't a debate about the virus because we all have access to the same information um, and you can kind of interpret it as you may. I think maybe, maybe I don't, I don't know if I feel, if I should even say this, but I feel like this is a small risk I'm willing to take. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, of course that risk and that, that willingness makes sense. And it's, something I need to continue to think about in advance of seeing them and and more importantly, convey how I'm feeling to you so that I don't harbor any resentment over what we end up ultimately doing. Yeah, I guess my bottom line is that because you're on the more cautious side, I mean, let's be honest, we both fall on the very cautious end of the spectrum to begin with. Um, It's not like I'm throwing caution to the wind. I really haven't seen people uh, up close without a mask or indoors. But I, again, I think I go back to on this side, if you're more cautious, I'm willing to kind of come over to your end, which is really only like inching my way because we're not that far apart. But I, I thought I'd bring it up because, yeah, I think it's just evidence that it's not always about meeting 50-50. On some issues, you're going to meet your partner at like 99 or 100. And I, I guess maybe we'll we'll update a little next week. <laughs> Uh, I do want to say thank you to our continued support from letsgetcheck.com. They offer at-home testing for all of your health needs from hormones and STIs to thyroid, liver, kidney, and more. You can go to letsgetcheck.com, order your kit, get your sample, send it in, and get your results securely online. And please do use code Dr. Jess so that they know that you heard about them here. Now, today, we're going to be talking with a journalist, a sex journalist, who has written so many articles, probably more articles than anybody else in the world on sex, and answered more than 12,000 sex questions for newspapers, magazines, and online sites. And we're going to be talking about a range of, of topics from sex and aging to full body pleasure, to overcoming premature ejaculation, to sensate focus. So I'm definitely looking forward to this conversation. Joining us now is Michael Castleman, a journalist who has specialized in sexuality for 45 years, the world's most popular sex writer with 49 million views on his pieces and author of a new book, Sizzling Sex for Life, Everything You Need to Know to Maximize Erotic Pleasure 
at any age. Welcome. Thanks so much for being here, Michael. I'm excited to chat with you. You've been writing about sex for 46 years. How did you find yourself writing about sex 46 years ago? Well, it's a funny story, actually. I was writing for an underground newspaper in Michigan, and I was doing health uh, reporting. And Valentine's Day was coming up. And the publisher came to me and said, look, we need to put together a lot of advertising for Valentine's Day, so we need a big cover story about sex, and we want you to write a story called How to Make Love. And I immediately refused to do this because I was 23 years old and really didn't know very much about it. But the publisher said to me, wait a minute, you live with your girlfriend, you're having sex, you write about it. I refused and I left the office and uh, walked home, uh, which was a 10-minute walk away. When I got home, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, said to me, what do you mean you won't write this article about sex? You have to write this thing. See, the publisher knew Anne, my wife, and called her and said, you got to convince Michael to write this story. So I said, all right, yeah, I, I, with my uh, girlfriend, wife's encouragement, I uh, decided I would do it. And uh, we were living in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the time, uh, and there was a sexuality program there uh, at the uh, university. So I interviewed a bunch of people, read a bunch of books, and, uh, and that was that. And I, um, I really enjoyed it. I liked writing about sex, uh, which was kind of a surprise. Um, and uh, people certainly are interested in it, so I've been writing about it ever since. Apparently. Now... The landscape must have been very different back then, uh, where, you know, there were not hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of sex writers. How did it affect the way people approached you, your friends, your family? I, I would say people you dated, but it sounds like you were you were pretty locked down. Well, it really didn't have that much effect on my life, actually. I mean, it was, you know, I was a journalist and I wrote about a lot of things. I wrote about health and I wrote about sex and um you know, it just, uh, it happened more on the page than in my life. Uh, you know, I would talk about it, but um, uh, journalism is exists in its own little bubble, and, and um, uh, I didn't really bring it up with friends that much, actually. <laughs> I still don't. I'm, a lot of my friends, all my friends know that I write about sex, but it's not like they're reading my blogs and, uh, you know, they're all over me. What are you writing about today? Um, it just doesn't work like that. Hmm. It's interesting because, you know, Brandon, since he's joined this podcast and he doesn't have a background specifically in sexology or sexual health, but he does find that, you know, people approach Pe him with questions. People gravitate to me and they're they're looking for my take on things. And I'm surprised that your friends don't kind of covertly pull you aside uh, over drinks and say, hey, wh what do you think about this or what do you think about that? Because in the hockey dressing rooms, um, at events that we've hosted, I always have people who come up and will say, I know Jess, you know, focuses, focuses in on the education and, you know, really driving home the importance of healthy sexual relationships and relationships in general. But tell me more about this, about this, about this resort or about this toy or something like that. And they want to know really what I think. So do, do you oh, get yeah, that? that? You must get that. Yeah, sure, that happens. I mean, when people have, 
when people of my acquaintance have sexual issues, they know that I write about it. They know that I'm a sex expert, and so they do ask. In fact, I had an old friend email me um, last week about uh, a sexual issue. So, you know, it happens regularly, but it's not like, I I mean, I'm not famous. It's not, uh, I'm not uh, Dr. Jess. So um, uh, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I guess I'm a little quieter uh, than a lot of media people uh, around it, but certainly I'm happy to talk about it and I do talk about it and we're talking about it right now. I love it. And I think that difference probably has to do with the landscape being so different for journalists. If you look back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, you didn't have to create the same brand on social media and pump out and be responsible for the number of clicks the way you do. Now, you've answered 12,000 sex questions for newspapers. At least, least, yes. (laughs) And, And you were the Playboy advisor. Well, I was the Playboy advisor for sex. They had other guys for cars and etiquette and grooming and things like that. But I answered all the sex questions for five years, yes. I love that. So what is the most memorable question that comes to mind that you had to answer as the Playboy advisor? Because I read that column. I loved it. Uh, well, um, I would say the, um, the biggest explosion that happened was when um, when Magic Johnson announced that he had that he was HIV positive um, in the uh, I guess it was the mid 1980s. Well, no, I wrote from 90 to 91, so uh, from 91 to 95. So it was early on, around 1991, 92. Magic Johnson announced he was HIV positive, and then there was an explosion of uh, Playboy readers wanted to know all about HIV. So that was the single biggest sort of earthquake moment uh, in my uh, Playboy advisor career. But, um, you know, day to day, um, it was all the usual questions that young men ask. I mean, they asked about uh, masturbation. They asked about premature ejaculation was the single biggest subject um, that because young men often lack ejaculatory control and they want it. They want it bad. Um, <laughs> and so I often answered questions about that. Uh, and, uh, you know, then just the full range of issues that um, young men faced. Playboy was very focused on the 18 to 34-year-old demographic. And so we didn't get too many questions about uh, how heart disease is going to uh, impact your erection function, because that's for older men. But it was it was the young guys who uh, came too fast, couldn't come at all. Some of them had erection issues. A lot of them had uh, were clueless about women's sexuality and wouldn't know a clitoris from you know their elbow. But um, <laughs> uh, you know, but we tried to. Uh, uh, the, the whole point of it was to educate and enlighten with um, uh, with a sense of humor, and uh, I tried my best. Okay, so when you talk about premature ejaculation, what would you say most people get wrong? Or what advice would you offer based on your experience in research that might surprise people? Well, uh, mainly premature ejaculation is usually a bad habit that is um, caused by, you know, misinformation about sex. I mean, a lot of men, particularly young men, think that sex is all about intercourse, that it's only about your penis and what it goes into. Um, 
and that puts tremendous pressure on your little friend, and um, and the little guy just can't take it, and so he comes quickly. What men don't realize is that lovemaking is less about the penis than it is about whole body massage, and if you all, if you're penis fixated, then you at high risk for premature ejaculation. If you expand your definition of lovemaking to basically be about extended whole body massage that eventually focuses on the genitals, then what happens is you spread the arousal from head to toe all over the body, and it takes pressure off the penis. And so... um, I would always encourage men, and still do, uh, and sex therapists, I'm sure you do too, encourage men to be less genitally preoccupied and more playful and more massage-oriented. Um, and because for two reasons. One is that um, it's a lot easier to gain ejaculatory control uh, when you make love that way. But the added benefit is that uh, many, many surveys show that most women prefer a whole body massage-oriented style of lovemaking as well. And so it's a win-win. Men can uh, uh, come when they want, and women have more fun too, and men get higher marks as lovers from these women, and uh, everybody's happy. I wish somebody would have told me that when I was younger. Uh, Just like you said, the idea that slow down, take your time, that 20 minutes that you're spending working up your partner is really going to make them think that you're a rock star. Because again, I I think initially when I was younger, it was just like, okay, I got to get to the, the penis has got to get in there, right? And we got to get it done. And there was such a focus on that. And then if it didn't lead up to the... 30 minutes of sex, like you were told it should last to result in orgasm for both parties, it was a bit of a letdown. And I'm not going to pretend like the first few times that I had sex that I was a rock star at it. I think the third time was a bit of an outlier and a fluke. It took forever. But, you know, the first couple times, let's be honest, I w- a 20 minute massage of my partner would have probably made them think that I was a lot better <laughs> than, I, than I was. And would you have enjoyed it more? I think it would have been an exercise in control, just like Michael had said, where trying to focus in and not just get to that would have been the biggest challenge. But if I was, if somebody just said, hey man, take your time, the, your partner's going to th- going to really enjoy it and you're going to be better, you're going to be perceived as a better lover because you're paying attention to your partner, then you know, I hope that the younger version of me would have heeded that advice. I wonder, too, why there is such a focus on how your partner perceives you. You know, so, Michael, your new book, um, it's called it's coming up. It's called Sizzling Sex for Life, Everything You Need to Know to Maximize Erotic Pleasure at Any Age. I like the language of pleasure. Like, can this can we just focus more on the pleasure itself and less on the performance, less on looking like a rock star, less on having a partner who says good stuff about you. I think that um, women are intuitively better at sex than men. Women, uh, in general, enjoy gentle, playful, uh, sensual touch. Men, young men in particular, just want to get some. And to um, 
and for men, for young men in particular, but men of all ages, you know, sex is a penis-focused thing. That's how they were raised. That's what they believe. Um, and uh, learning to enjoy giving and receiving massage for a lot of men is kind of an acquired taste and takes a while. Uh, I know it was when I started writing about sex, um, I had premature ejaculation. And when I wrote that first article, I read Masters and Johnson, who had developed a cure for premature ejaculation. And I was astounded. I thought, oh my God, I mean, I could get better. So I went to my girlfriend, uh, Anne, and I said, all right, you talked me into writing this article. Now I've got this situation. Can you work on it with me? She said, sure. So um, we started doing what Masters and Johnson recommended. They called it sensate focus is the jargony term for whole body massage. And uh, we got into some erotic whole body massage together. And I was like surprised. I thought, whoa, this is actually okay. I like this. Um, and uh, uh, so I think that um, my experience is not that different from a lot of men's, that, um, that the transition from uh, penis-preoccupied lovemaking to whole-body massage, it's kind of an acquired taste. But once you acquire it, you never go back. You think, well, God, you know, why didn't I, why didn't I figure this out earlier? Uh, that's how I felt anyway, and I think that that's how um, uh, a lot of other men experience it also. Uh, and and um, and then when the woman you're involved with is enjoying sex a lot more because she's getting a lot more massage, um, like I said, it's a win-win and everybody's happy. And so that becomes a very quickly self-reinforcing uh, way to make love because everybody benefits. Right. And I know we're talking right now, just to folks listening out there, from a, from a more heterosexual, I think, context than we usually do. But this is your experience. This is what you're sharing. And, uh, you know, in writing this book, you must have learned so many other things. What were you most surprised by in doing the research for your upcoming book? I was most surprised, I think, by um, the uh, controversy over sex addiction. Hmm. Ah, let's talk about that. Uh, sex addiction is, uh, to, to those in the, there, there's an industry in, in, uh, North America, the sex addiction industry that diagnoses this supposed scourge and then treats it. Um, that's just one problem is that it doesn't really exist. In fact, uh, DSM-5, the, uh, Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, that was uh, updated and released in 2013, so that's seven years ago, uh, eliminated all references to sex addiction. Um, you know, people who identify as quote-unquote sex addicts, they don't have any more sex or any weirder sex than most other people. It's just they're a lot more upset about it, usually because they were raised in uh, very repressed uh, cultural or religious backgrounds that uh, demonized masturbation, demonized casual sex, insisted on virginity at marriage. Um, and so a lot of people grow up with these messages reverberating in their heads, 
And then they're normal people. They masturbate. They have casual sex. They're not virgins when they marry. And they think they must be horrible and on their way to hell. Um, so really, sex addiction is not about sex. It's really about uh, anxiety. Um, and, uh, and the treatment that works for it is cognitive behavioral therapy that says to people, hey, it's, you're normal. You're okay. Everybody is pretty much like you. Um, it's okay to masturbate. It's okay to uh, uh, have uh, uh, premarital sex. It's, it's okay. Um, and so to me, that was the biggest surprise. I had not spent all that much time delving into the controversy over sex addiction, but um, uh, now that I have, I just, I feel sorry for people who um, consider themselves sex addicts because they took some, you know, random internet survey and then they think there's something horribly wrong with them. And then the ir irony is that they just get more uptight. Right. And so and it, becomes a, it becomes a vicious cycle. And it's the place of sexuality professionals uh, and cognitive behavioral therapists to say, wait a minute, your beliefs are mistaken. Uh, it's, it's okay. You're all right. You're okay. Um, so much of, of being uh, in the sexuality field, as you know, Dr. Jess, is just giving permission to people to be who they are. I mean, mm -hmm. apart from, you know, frankly, illegal sex acts, you know, things that are crimes, pretty much everything else is okay. And mm -hmm. uh, people get very upset about it, but um, often needlessly. And so much of what we do is just to say, you know what, you're all right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and even some of the acts that are crimes are perfectly, can be perfectly healthy too, right? We have some, some behaviors that are still labeled as criminal, which are, are perfectly healthy for some people. And oftentimes it's, it's rooted in sex work phobia, rooted in homophobia. And those, some of those laws are still on the books. I'm really glad you brought up uh, sex addiction, because sex addiction is an industry, not a diagnosis, right? We have research showing that sex addiction is what we call iatrogenic, which means that, you know, when a someone who identifies as a self as a sex addict self identifies, it's the identification that actually increases the symptoms of distress. So the label and the treatment are actually what cause the illness. And what I see, and I'm sure you've seen this in your work too, is that the label of sex addict is often scapegoated to avoid personal responsibility and accountability. So, you know, if somebody cheats, they turn to sex addiction to avoid acknowledging the real reason they decided to, to cheat. And, and in other cases, the term sex addiction is used to condemn behavior that we subjectively judge to be inappropriate. So for example, you know, if, if somebody has sex with many or multiple partners, sometimes they're accused of being addicted to sex, despite the fact that they may be in engaging in a way that's really healthy for them. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're covering this uh, in, in your book. And once again, your, your book is coming out very soon. It is Sizzling Sex for Life, Everything You Need to Know to Maximize Erotic Pleasure at Any Age. Um, and you include it at any age. So I'd love to get your thoughts before I let you go on sex and aging and maybe what you've learned personally um, about sex that you, you perhaps could not have fathomed 46 years ago. 
Well, I'm glad you asked about it because uh, after 46 years of sex writing, I'm now 70 years old. So, I mean, I'm elderly. Um, and uh, there's no expiration date on sex. You know, people are, sec are sexual for life. And sex changes uh, as you run through the lifespan. So the kind of sex you have at age 70 is not exactly the same kind of sex you had at age 20. I mean, it's similar, but it's not the same. Uh, and the key uh, to enjoying lovemaking throughout life is just like living throughout life. You have to adapt to the changes that age brings. And um, the, the key thing for uh, older couples, I think, is to realize that um, intercourse, vaginal intercourse, usually drops out of the picture. Men, uh, almost all men, develop some kind of erection issues, many of which are not treatable with drugs. And meanwhile, older women, postmenopausal women, develop vaginal dryness and tissue thinning of the vagina that's called vaginal atrophy that can make intercourse uncomfortable even if there's copious lubrication. So you've got guys who have problems with erections, women who have problems having men inside them, at a certain point, older couples generally look at each other and say, you know what, this intercourse thing, it's just not working anymore. Uh, but older couples can still have what uh, sexuality uh, professionals call outer course instead of intercourse, which is everything else. Kissing, hugging, cuddling, oral sex, uh, maybe some anal play, maybe some kink, whole body massage. There's a huge playground of sex that uh, older people uh, can enjoy. And there's just one little corner that becomes problematic, which is the vaginal intercourse part. But everything else is totally open to older people. And I talk to a lot of older people who say that um, their older sex, their sex after 70, is the best of their life because they're relaxed, they uh, understand whole body massage, they're not intercourse fixated. They enjoy oral sex. Uh, maybe they're playing with uh, some, uh, you know, blindfolds or whatever, a little kink stuff. Um, whatever they can have fun. Uh, and like I said, there's no expiration date. So you can have great sex at, in your late 80s, 90s, 100, um, because it's really about whole body touch and massage and closeness um, that eventually focuses on the genitals. I, I almost wish that we were presented with this kind of information younger in our lives because it seems like sex can be so incredible as you get older, but when we're younger, we're not really taught the outer course, right? The idea of playing with different things rather than just focusing in on sex. And I think if somebody had once again presented this or encouraged this when I was younger it would have made my initial foray into, into sex so much better and probably so much more comfortable. And, and I just, I love hearing that, that as you get older, you're more open to trying different things because one door closes, but it sounds to me like 50 other doors open. Yeah. And better doors perhaps, yeah. because, yeah. you know, when you started describing sex as you get older, I think from the dominant lens of, of PV sex, I'm like, oh, well, so you, you can't have that thing that we're expected to have. 
And so it sets it up as a problem when, in fact, the problem, the so-called problem, is leading to greater fulfillment, greater exploration, deeper intimacy, more pleasure, more intense orgasms, less performance pressure, and all of those great things. So it seems disappointing to me that we have to wait for these so-called problems to arise in order to look for solutions when, in fact, they weren't solutions to begin with. They were just options. So I'm definitely excited um, excited to continue learning uh you know for years to come excited to check out your book as well sizzling sex for life everything you need to know to maximize erotic pleasure at any age and the last few words are the most um, alluring to me so thank you michael kassman thanks for being here and i uh, wish you all all the you know all the luck with the release of your new book and uh how long are you going to write for you've been writing for 46 years how much longer do we have in you i don't know i'm hoping to die in the saddle <laughs> I love it. Maybe we can get you to come right, right for our blog. That could be interpreted in many ways based on what you just said. <laughs> Thanks for yes. having me on, Dr. Jess. Nice to talk, Brandon, and uh, uh, hope we can do it again. Really sure. appreciate it. And Brandon with the dad joke to close things out. <laughs> So many gems in here, and the biggest for me is the reminder that we do not need to wait until we encounter challenges or problems to explore sex from beyond the genitals. We don't have to wait until something is labeled a problem to broaden our horizons and explore full body pleasure. You know, if you end up dealing with painful sex, if you end up dealing with erectile issues, you will need to broaden your repertoire to continue to explore pleasure and orgasm. But why wait? Start now. It makes sex better than ever, (laughs) Uh, regardless of your age or the ways in which your body responds during sex. And Michael also mentioned that some, or I think he said most or many older couples, opt out of penis in vagina intercourse uh, on account of issues with erection and lubrication and vaginal atrophy. And I know that that's, you know, the hetero perspective, not the way that all of us are always having sex. But I do want to highlight that also no experience is universal because some couples in their 70s and 80s and beyond continue to have all types of sex, continue to have erections, to experience lubrication, to enjoy penetration. So we really just want to honor the huge range of experiences that we can, you know, enjoy across the lifespan. So thank you to Michael for giving us more to look forward to. Thanks, babe, for being here. Thank you to you for listening. And a big thanks to letsgetchecked.com. Do head on over if you have any health tests that you would like to try out from home and use code Dr. Jess to save. Thanks for chatting with me, babe. Yeah, thank you. That was great. Really informative and allowed me to reflect on my younger years. (laughs) More of that on an upcoming episode. (laughs) Folks, wherever you're at, hope you have a great one. And hang in there. The holiday season is coming up. I'm not sure if that's a, a positive thing for everyone, but I do hope folks are keeping healthy and happy and that relationships are feeling relatively harmonious at this time. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life.